The Legacy of John Williams Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams Welcome, this is Maurizio Caschetto of The Legacy of John Williams. I'm here for a new Legacy Conversations episode for The Legacy of John Williams podcast. Today we are moving away from the world of musicians just for a while to make a visit into the recording booth where the magic made by composers is captured by the expert hands of some of the world's best scoring mixers and music engineers. In fact, our guest is a true pro of the Los Angeles film scoring scene. He has been working for many years at the Sony scoring stage in Culver City, where he worked with top scoring mixers and music engineers on hundreds of movie projects involving the biggest names of the film music scene, including John Williams. After leaving Sony, he founded Hollywood Scoring, a music production company offering a wide variety of services from studio recording to live performance. His most recent projects include the recording for composers Pinar Toprak, Randy Kerber, and Alex Temple. So I am happy to introduce to the listeners of The Legacy of John Williams, Adam Mihalak. Hello, Adam. Nice to have you here. Hello. Thank you for having me here. And joining us in the conversation is a passionate John Williams admirer with stories to tell and a true friend of both of us. Please welcome Doug Lacey. Hello, Doug. Nice to have you here, too. Thank you, Maurizio. It's a, as a longtime listener of the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure to have you and to have Adam today, because as I said, you know, this podcast so far has dedicated a lot of time to talks and interviews with musicians, you know, who are in most cases the unsung heroes of the film scores that we all love to listen to, um, putting a spotlight on the great musicianship that is uh, especially for the Los Angeles studio musicians scene. Uh, so today we go from the recording stage into the recording booth, or the aquarium, as some musicians told me that they like to call <laughs> that space, <laughs> and and talked with, with you, Adam, uh, because uh, you have a long history of, you know, you, I, I was looking at your resume and your IMDb credits. It's impressive. We, we talk about... 20 plus years of works working for the greatest names of the in the industry, you know, from John Williams, but also Danny Elfman, James Newton Howard, Hans Zimmer, John Powell, you know, basically every every great name that has been successful in this field. So before, you know, going into your John Williams experiences, I'd love to touch upon your, you know, your background, your formation, how you ended up being a scoring mixer, and how did you pursue that this passion throughout, you know, your youth? Well, I think starting with my youth is is the right place. And like so many of my colleagues that are in audio, we all started out with playing instruments. We all started out in some study of of music. I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I note that because I was fortunate enough to go to a public school system that had a really great instrumental and vocal music program. They came around in fourth grade and asked you kind of like, do you want to play a brass or wind instrument? That isn't to say that other people weren't learning piano privately in their home, but you know, I started 
taking trumpet lessons in fourth grade all through the school system. And that excitement about playing music certainly went through to get me into what I did in college. I started on trumpet, eventually got braces, and that wasn't going to work out. I landed on tuba, started playing <laughs> tuba in the marching band and other ensembles and decided tuba was fun, but it might be a lot cooler to learn an electric bass, which it certainly was. That was sort of the first thing I really started taking seriously with private lessons and immerse myself in anything I could do in high school with music, whether it was ensembles outside of school, pit orchestra, marching band, jazz ensemble, settlement music school, Philadelphia. I just wanted to be around music. That passion eventually led me to going to uh, University of Miami, where, where Doug and I are both alumni of, and looking at the music engineering program, and then looking at a career in something that was audio related that still kept me around music. I mm -hmm. think I had a, a realization, even before I went to college, I was a good musician, but I wasn't a great instrumentalist. And it became clear that I didn't have to be a great instrumentalist to pursue a career in music. There are so many avenues, as we all know now. People ask me if I still play bass. The answer is no, but I, I play the computer. And I think we all play the computer <laughs> more than we ever thought we would. And so much sure. music is created on a computer. So sure. anyway, it was that love of instrumental music growing up that led me to pursue my career. But I should preface that, that even before getting into instrumental music and learning instruments, like so many kids, you know, I was obsessed with music, whether it was listening to the radio or listening to cassettes, um, <laughs> uh, listening True. to records. Yeah, music was a passion, whether I was listening to it or learning to play it. And it was the culmination of all that that led me to decide to focus on a career in audio by the time I got to college. And how was the path that led you ultimately in, in L.A.? you know, that brought you on, on the scene where, you know, the, the stuff was going. I mean, L.A. is a staple for music, I mean, in an in international sense. I mean, there is, we are not just talking about movie music, but, you know, every kind of music. You know, L.A. had always been one of the key cities together with London and with New York. Basically, they're the three biggest cities where all the great Western music is being made. Was Los Angeles your ultimate destination in that regard or you know, you had other plans. I thought about two places. It was pretty much New York or LA at that point. And I should back up a little bit. Before I went to University of Miami, I actually went to Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, and I was going to be an electrical engineer. I wasn't sure exactly where I was going to land, but it became clear to me while I was at Purdue that let's just say a kid from the East Coast was not a good fit for the middle of <laughs> Indiana. And I missed... I missed being around music, and luckily, a, a really good friend of mine, Pod Groves, who uh, lives in New York, amazing musician, he was one year uh, younger than I was. I came back for Thanksgiving break from Purdue, kind of miserable, and he had his application for University of Miami. He's like, you should look at this program. It's literally describing everything that, that you want to do. Here, take it, just fill out the introductory letter, send it off, and just do this and, and, and consider it. Looking back at why I decided L.A., you know, this is sort of where I'm going to get into the scoring geek side of me growing up. I was, I was a film scoring geek. I found a passion for watching movies and with that, the music that was attached to those movies. I often say this sort of bit that, you know, if you ever watch interviews with a series of astronauts that were working a lot in the 80s and 90s, 
and early 2000s and the interview goes why did you decide to become an astronaut they all give the same answer they all say when i was a kid and i saw neil armstrong walk on the moon i knew at that moment i was going to be an astronaut they all give the same answer and i think like so many of people around my age listening to things like the music from star wars jurassic park I fell in love with this genre. I didn't quite know why. I, I, I had these CDs. My stepfather had a cassette to um, certain movie soundtracks that he liked that I found, which were Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and so I was surrounded with this music, in addition to other stuff that I liked. But I think the combination of playing an orchestral instrument from fourth grade, being in wind ensembles and orchestras, and then finding this modern music so accessible gave me a passion for wondering if it would be possible to pursue this as a career. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't nearly as much information on how this stuff got made at the time. So I was in college in Miami, late 90s. I was doing an internship one summer at Crescent Moon Studios, which was a Gloria and Emilia Estefan studio, which was a great experience. I learned a lot about Latin music and Latin music production, but it occurred to me while I was there that I really wanted to be around film scoring. And so at that moment, all I knew was whatever I was going to do next summer had to be in L.A. I didn't know where. I didn't know how. But if I wanted to pursue this, I had to go to L.A. It was pretty much there was really no option. London seemed like, you know, really, really, I didn't even consider it. And I'll never forget, at that time, the credits didn't really show too much about where the stuff got produced. Even the mm -hmm. album credits didn't really show much. And I had bought the CD, the soundtrack to the second Jurassic Park. And I remember seeing something I had never seen in the liner notes that recorded and mixed by Sean Murphy at Sony Pictures scoring stage, Culver City, California. And for the first time in my life, I actually had an address. Wow, okay, <laughs> this is the studio I should go to and find a something at. Maybe I could get an internship there the mm. next summer because this is where the stuff's getting made that I like. Wouldn't it be cool to have an internship there?
I wasn't thinking so much about the career yet, the job. I mean, maybe in the back of my mind, I kind of knew I'd have to move to L.A., but that was sort of my first moment. And I think the rest of that year, I pursued making contacts to try to get an internship at Sony in Sony mm -hmm. post-production. I didn't even have an internship at the scoring stage, per se. There wasn't even a formal process. But I did find a contact that I reached out to and asked for an internship at Sony post-production, which is the sound department. So now I had actually something lined up for a summer, not at the scoring stage, at Sony Pictures post-production sound department. And now I'm a lot closer. When I got there, I met my contact. The first thing I did was wander the lot. You know, I had a map. And I look up and there's this giant neon treble clef that we all have seen from the pictures. And I thought, oh my God, this is it. I walked down the piano hallway and I saw two people setting up for a morning session. And that was actually the first time I set foot in the live room was that moment. And it was a little like, oh my gosh, what am I even doing here? This is crazy. <laughs> and I introduced myself to two complete strangers and just said, hi, my name's Adam. I'm working in the sound department for a summer internship. And I'd, I'd really love to intern on the scoring stage if that's possible. And Sue McLean said to me, if you want to be an intern on the scoring stage, go find Amanda and tell her you want to answer the phones. And so I did that immediately. <laughs> I said, I'm here for a summer internship, but you know, I'm working in other parts of the department, but any opportunity to answer the phones on the scoring stage, I'd, I'd love. Condensing some things, I almost spent that whole summer glued to the back desk in the scoring stage answering mm -hmm. phones. And through that opportunity, I made contacts that propelled me to the rest of my life. Pat Weber was the, the scoring stage chief engineer at a music studio. He'd be the head tech. Through him and other contacts, it eventually led me to getting work in Los Angeles. I mean, I just became this like fixture in the back that whoever was there, it was this, and I wouldn't leave. In my mind, I thought this could be my only chance to ever be here. I might as well suck it all up as much as I can. <laughs> and I met a lot of amazing people that I'm still friends with, that I still work with. And now I saw a lot of composers. Uh, ironically, John did not come through that summer, so I did not see John at all. But the biggest movie they worked on that summer was the score to Armageddon, oh. which at the time was this massive release. And Absolutely, we did, yes. Absolutely. You know, uh, Trevor Rabin scored it. I believe he was working out of Media Adventures at the time, now Remote Control. Mm -hmm. And so there was an army of people producing this project. And I had never seen anything like this. I mean, I had been going to college. You know, Miami had, has a strong audio program, but the studio program is not like what you might get from something like Full Sail or even Berkeley. You talk to the professors at Miami, and the program shifted from what it was in the 70s. Like, they don't encourage people to go into a career in the studio business mm. with good reason. They encourage people to get jobs at places like Dolby and Microsoft and, like, game studios and learn how to develop and, like, you know, get a job, kid. Like, you know, you want to really do this? Like, if they pushed all those people into studios, a lot of them, you know, that drive had to come from within. So generally, sure. people that graduated from Miami that pursued studio careers it tended to be like one or two maybe three at most out of each graduating class it's very interesting because uh, it's a different way to you know so far i talked with with several uh people who told me basically similar story but from the musician perspective you know i i was a little kid i watched star wars i fell in love with that music and and on all the other great movies that you know were re being released in that you know time frame between the late late 70s early 80s up to the early 90s you know that 
10, 15 years period where, you know, John Williams was skyrocketed, basically being the, the, the greatest, most successful film composers around, but also other great, great composers, also like James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith, and Basil Polidoris, you know, all yes. other great names that, that really enriched the, the, the movie scoring scene with this great symphonic scores, all of them beautifully recorded as well, because yes. this is another side of things that maybe we can talk about later. Uh, you know, the level of detail of those recordings, starting, you know, from the late 70s, uh, you know, opened up a new sound world for a lot of people because, yes, it was great orchestral music, finely written, finely composed, perfect for the movies, but also beautifully recorded. And that is something that not often is being singled out as much as it should be. You know, people like Eric Tomlinson, for example, yes. you know, was so key in shaping up the sound of Star Wars, for example. Absolutely. I mean, Eric Eric was certainly a, a trailblazer. I think partially it was like, you have these opportunities and, and he had these opportunities to work with John on these famous recordings. I still think his recording of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that that soundtrack is probably my favorite of, of, of his work, certainly. audio engineer and someone that wanted to pursue it, it became clear that, and again, back then, you know, there was no mix with the masters, there was no YouTube, there was not as much BTS of, of these sessions. The, the path to learning your craft as a recording engineer was start out as a runner at a recording studio, and eventually they'll let you assist, and you'll start assisting recording engineers and mixers, and you'll get to learn from them how to work. But with film scoring, the amount of studios drops from like, you know, I don't know, hundreds or thousands in the U.S. to like three or five. <laughs> and, and, it, and it became clear very quickly that there, there weren't a lot of opportunities to learn this. You know, where I was coming from, my thought was, was to sort of look at that model. If I want to learn to be a scoring mixer, I'd better get a job at the scoring stage, whatever that looks like, because mm -hmm. that's the only way to be around all of these great scoring mixers and learn their craft and watch what they do. And, 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 you know, sometimes they're in great moods and they love to share and teach. And sometimes they're busy and they're focused and you just kind of, you're just, you're supporting them. And through the opportunity of being at the studio, you get to learn and watch and see how everyone does of what course, they do. Yes. Adam, at the time uh, that you interned, so we had Sony, you had universal scoring stage. Universal, as best as, as I could tell, Universal had closed by then. I, okay. I, from, from what I remember when I had started, I think Warners had just shut down for a year because they were under their remodel. Fox had just reopened the Balaton 
uh, remodel was finished. I think it was 97 when, when the new uh, Fox yes. stage reopened. There was a big party. There was a big party when, when everything, and John was there. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. so the context was my summer internship was in 98. Um, when Armageddon was getting made, and I think they worked on A Bug's Life, too, which was pretty cool. And then 99, <laughs> I moved there. So at that time, by 99, Warner's had reopened, Fox was open, Sony was open, Universal was not open, Paramount was open, and Disney was no longer open. And Tadeo was open. So that those were the five main rooms when I sort of entered Los Angeles full-time. And that's great. I mean, and, and I'd love to bring in you, Doug, here, because, uh, you know, as you and Adam crossed paths uh, during your college years, uh, so did, did you ever think about you yourself pursuing a career into that field? Not really. No. Well, well when I was at Miami and, and I, like Adam, transferred from another university into Miami, into the program, because I realized what I was studying at the prior university I had an epiphany that oh, that's not what I wanted to do at all. And so I mm -hmm. looked at my interests, my interest in film music, classical music, and I, and I thought, well, and, and I was in an engineering program. It was environmental engineering at that time. And I knew that was my strength, math and science. And so I looked at my interests and I said, well, I'll go into like some sort of audio engineering program. When I transferred to Miami, my goal was to go into audio post-production. And, and my ultimate goal was to work at Skywalker Ranch, Skywalker Sound, uh, Near the end of my my uh, time at Miami, I realized that wasn't going to happen uh, it, for a number of reasons. And long story short, I ended up in working in audio, but in, in a forensic audio aspect of of, mm. of the field, which was something we didn't learn about at all at Miami. Uh, it was not something that was even taught at that time. You know, I never. What's interesting, I never had that moment that Adam did, where I realized, oh, th these film scores are recorded somewhere, and and. And that's where I that's where I should go and look. Mm -hmm. I, I, I never had that that moment for some reason. And it wasn't until I think Adam 2003, I remember at the AES conference in LA, every year, uh, Maurizio, Miami holds a, a, a mixer for alumni uh, of the university at mm -hmm. the AES conferences. And I think it was was it Mike Babcock, Adam, I think that I think may have said, Hey, you guys need to talk because Mike, who I graduated with, he, he and I graduated the same year. He knew I had a, a, a love of John Williams, a love of film music, and he said, "Well, you got to meet Adam because he works. You know, he works with the man." And at that time, <laughs> Adam, I think you were, you were working on Finding Nemo. So I started at Sony full time in 2002, and that would have been one of the earliest projects that yeah. I worked on at that point, certainly. Yeah. So that that yeah that in 2003 is when I reconnected with Adam. I think we overlapped by a year at Miami. I think we did because I remember. I mean, I remember seeing Mike a lot, and I think this is another sort of divergent part about the the the, the Miami program. There were actually two tracks. Doug was on a newer, interesting track that was actually in the School of Engineering, studying like an audio-focused discipline of engineering. The program that I was in was sort of the original track, which was actually in the School of Music which is a music degree that has a minor in electrical engineering. I think now you can get a minor in computer science or computer programming. We had different focuses. Mine, mine had a strong music emphasis with a minor. Doug has a full engineering degree. Mm -hmm. That's one of the core differences. And that's probably why we didn't really bump into each other because I was spending most of nearly all my time in the school of music. Yeah, other than Friday mornings for Audio Forum. If, That's right. Yeah, uh, on the other 50% right. the of the time that I would make it to that. That you know? all of us, yes. <laughs> yeah.
Adam, did you also have at that time already heroes in terms of uh, audio engineers, you know, scoring mixers, or do, or did you have any reference uh, albums? You know, not maybe not 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 just film music. I mean, in general, I mean, I listened to a lot of GRP recordings because I I was always really impressed with the production of those recordings, but it became clear when I was in school, actually, that like that sort of part of the industry had kind of imploded and imploded is a bad word, but like its moment had passed. When I had considered going to New York, it looked at that sort of thing and it became clear while I was in Miami that it, it was gonna be LA or bust. You know, I think initially with my passion for film music, I would say there were certainly a few names that, and at the time, I would say the work pool was a lot smaller than it is now. You basically had, a handful of scoring mixers doing 95% of the work. One of the first things I noted was that, you know, you'd see you'd see one guy's name on all these other composers' credits, and, and it was Sean. I mean, Sean Murphy was recording John Williams, James Horner, James Newton Howard, and, and it became clear that, well, this guy's really busy and working with a lot of these people. That's that's interesting. What What does that mean? And again, my reference to the Jurassic Park 2 soundtrack was, okay, this would be one of the people that would be at Sony. Along with, you know, I, I think when I got to L.A., I had the experience of working with, with the greats. Dennis Sands um, has done so many amazing recordings that I love, and I got to work with Dennis. I got to work with Armin Steiner, which was so exciting, and Dan Wallen. You know, working with with Danny and Armin, especially, I, I really enjoyed, and I, I was so young when I got this gig. I was, I was at least half the age of anyone else, which felt a little, filled me with a bit of anxiety. I was like, <laughs> basically, it's like, oh God, don't screw this up. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't have nearly the experience that the people I was there to assist did. It sort of gave me focus. But working with, working with, with, with these mixers, whether it was like, you know, Dennis, or Sean, and especially um, especially Armin and Danny, I loved hearing the stories of how things used to be. I loved hearing the stories of what the technology was that they were using and where we're at now. I found that sort of the most educational because you learn so much about why we do things the way we do now based on how we did things before. Hearing their perspectives about where they came up from, you know, Armin Steiner worked at radio recorders. Armin Steiner, uh, you know, was sort of a colleague of Al Schmidt. These are people that were like colleagues working together. And the stories they would share about their experience was just phenomenal. Yes. So for me, it was getting to work with these people and, and, and learn from them. And they all do things differently. They all do things differently. And, and I think that's one of the biggest takeaways is, you know, I, I might have some youthful bravado looking at the console and be like, what the fuck's this guy doing like this? This doesn't make any sense. And then I'd hear it and be like, I don't know what I'm talking about because this guy has 40 years of experience on me. And it, this might not make sense to me right now, but I just learned something. Yes. And, and, and I was always learning something from everyone. I think that was the, the greatest part of the experience at Sony there was learning from all of these mixers. Dur during your internship, which of, did you work with all of those those mixers at that time, or do you, do you recall? Well, I mean, thinking about, I'll, I'll peel off the word working with and, and, and just change it to sitting in the same room as, okay. um, <laughs> since, you know, I, I, I was just lucky to be there. I, sure. Well, because we were working on Armageddon, Steve Kempster was there a lot. Uh, Dennis was working with Randy Newman at the time, I believe, when they did A Bug's Life. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I believe Frank Wolf was there at one point. So, like, you know, everyone kind of came through briefly. Humberto may have even come through. You know, another tangent, but one of the exciting things about working at Sony as opposed to the other scoring stages was that for, for reasons, pop producers... And when I say pop producers, people like David Foster, Walter Afanasiev, people that would be working on like the type with the type of artists that would record a string section or an orchestra, they all wanted to go to Sony first mm. for mm. the sound of the room. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I got to see a whole other side of music getting recorded that wasn't film scoring, which was, mm -hmm. which was again, super educational. Humberto would do things that like in the film scoring side, it's like, why would you do that? You know, EQing things in a certain way that looks like it would kind of bite you in the ass, so to speak. <laughs> but then you hear the recording and you hear it and be like, man, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a radio hit. That is really good. So, again, just being in, being in the right place at the right time, I think, was the key to, you know, rattling off that resume of got to work with all these people. And I just say, man, I was just at the right studio. That's where they worked. I was working where they all went to work. So, luckily, I got to work with all these people. And and I think you know uh, we have to mention the fact that you know the the Sony scoring stage was you know originally the MGM scoring stage where you know all yes. so many great film scores were have been recorded there from the Wizard of Oz onto today. It's impressive that the level of history that those walls have absorbed is oh. is almost terrifying, I guess, uh, for for a young man or young or a young person coming into those rooms and feeling probably the history. That is a transpiring from the, those walls, and and so here's a funny story for you. So the scoring stage is actually the oldest poured shooting stage on the lot. Pre-modern lighting, they had these buildings with these big glass walls, and that was just to capture as much sunlight as possible. When they built the original scoring stage, and it was a poured structure, I think they quickly found out it was kind of small for a shooting stage, and eventually it was converted to music pretty early on. The same thing with the building where the control room sits. And Doug, I know you've been there, and, and I'm, I'm assuming you've both seen video and BTS and pictures. That control room is actually a room within a larger room, like another port structure. Mm -hmm. So it was a room within a room. If you go in the control room, in the back, there's this kitchen area. And then when you go in the back, you'll see these stairs that go up. Well, when you're in this little back sort of ante room, you're seeing the walls of the original structure you know, sort of the bones of the main wall. And, and it's interesting, Doug, I don't know if you caught this, but back when two by fours were about two by four, you're seeing wood, <laughs> you're, you're seeing larger two by fours. Um, I go upstairs and it's kind of a mess. It's a gear dump. It's a dump of gear that may have been used 20, 30 years ago. That's just kind of taking up space. And I find these boxes and in these boxes are sheets of paper that were old setup sheets. So when, when we advance a session, we do it all the time. Mixer sends us, you know, here's what I want. Here's my track sheet. Here's why I want things to land on the console. These are the microphones I want to use on these instruments. And here's kind of the layout. And the, the staff would take that information and coalesce it in sort of a common form. Well, all of these forms were sitting in a box. And one day I just sat up there and started thumbing through everything, you know, going back in time and thinking, you know, I, I think there was a, one of the things that I thought was so cool, I don't remember if it was the first film or a sequel, but it said Shaft, Conductor Isaac Hayes. <laughs> oh, Fantastic. Which I Amazing thought was group. just so cool. 
Oh, yeah, and there were lots of other setup sheets there from certainly the documentation got better as you go in like the 90s and 80s. They, they had done TV shows there. There were, there were setups from chips, you know, that I found. I was so excited to be around all that history. Again, like it, it wasn't lost on me every day that I was there, especially during the internship, that I was just so lucky to be in this room that very few people get to even stand in, let alone like experience a session on a day-to-day -day basis. It was like, you know, you couldn't stop smiling kind of situation. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm here and all this stuff gets done here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now that's, I, I, I recall from the, there was a EP released right after Memoirs of a Geisha came out where it was John Williams and Yo-Yo Ma uh, performing and, you know, piano and, and cello. And in the interview, John talks about, they're sitting in the room as this, as part of this interview in, in the recording stage. And, and he's commenting on, yeah, they're afraid to change anything about the room about, you know, to put put anything on the walls or do any treatments because of the sound of, of the stage. Well, I'm John Williams, and I'm sitting with my friend, Yoya Ma, and um, we're in Los Angeles at the Sony Studios in a wonderful old room in which we recorded much of the music for Memoirs of a Geisha and the music that Yoya and I have played today. But the room itself is... Uh, it's a fantastic storehouse. If these walls would be able to tell us what's happened here, we would hear stories about singing in the rain and Gene Kelly with American in Paris and the Wizard of Oz music. Imagine being recorded right here where we sit. Ben-Hur, all of the um, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland musicals, too. And I mentioned Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and Yo-Yo Ma recently <laughs> where, when we have recorded the music for Memoirs of a Geisha. So today, Ilya and I have been here playing three of the pieces from Memoirs of a Geisha in the form of piano and cello. And uh, it's given Yoyo and I a chance to, on one-on-one -on -one basis, play the music in this fantastic room, which I wish everyone listening to this tape could somehow visit. It's unchanged since the 1930s. It was originally a stage in which photography was done. And we're afraid to change the walls or the floor because all the reflecting services gives it the sound, the most beautiful quality. So it continues to look as it always has and sound it as, as it always has, which is very beautiful and very, uh, very flattering and gratifying to musicians. So here's something interesting. The way the lot worked pre-air conditioning was that chilled air was forced through like tunnels under the buildings into like vents that came up the sides. And at some point that system was decommissioned in favor of air conditioning. And we use those tunnels, sort of the tunnels at Sony are kind of legendary. We use those tunnels to run our cables. And there, <laughs> there were, I don't know if you call them plenums or, or, or places where the chilled air came out off the sides of the walls that were eventually closed. You guys have seen the video again. If you look around and you see a pan of the walls, you can see these different colored masonite panels that tend mm -hmm. to yeah. delineate, hey, something happened here, something happened here. <laughs> but but there's never been a a push to, hey, we should we should fill all this in with really nice fabric on the walls, like a real studio real studio. That would look <laughs> nice. Or what if we got a nice hardwood floor to replace this uh you know, it's like soundboard fiber soundboard on the walls and mason night on on the floor and that's kind of that signature sony look yes along that note i'll never forget peter cobbin you guys know who peter cobbin is peter cobbin is one of the 
best scoring mixers of our modern era right now. And I've and worked on Lord of the Rings, right? Yes, he did. Sure. He yeah. did. He was a staff. I think he's still on staff at Abbey Road. Uh, he came over to LA a couple times to do some recording. And the first time we met him, he walked into the live room and this speaks from someone that has experience. He said he knew the room sounded really good by how it looked. Because <laughs> he knew if the room looked like this and they never wanted to change it, it must sound really, really good. I, yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's true, but uh, I mean, I've never been there, but I can only imagine by listening because I mean, the, the personality of the room has contributed so much to a lot of John Williams scores. And in fact, I am of the opinion that uh, I think there, there's a pinnacle in terms of, you know, sound of the orchestra, sound of the room, uh, work of the engineer, Sean Murphy, that he reached throughout the early 90s when he was doing work scores like Hook, Jurassic Park and Far and Away, where the sound is so perfect in every, in every sense. And I, in this regard, I'd love to, to put a little musical interlude now and listen to a very brief excerpt from Far and Away, which I think is one of those scores where the level of beauty in terms of how the orchestra plays and how the room sounds and how the room plays together with the orchestra, thanks to you know the marvelousness also of the, the music itself, is so astonishing. And, and this piece, which features also the Chieftains as a partner together with the orchestra, is just a beautiful example of the level of artistry that also the great engineering can bring to music. That, that sums it up right there, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what year was that recorded? 1992. Yes. 
Okay. And uh, and I, as I was saying, I think in those years, uh, John and, and Sean together, really after a, maybe a few years experimenting uh, a little bit together, they found the perfect way to have this very natural sound, but also to amp it up somehow. Because here, I, what I love in this piece, for example, is how the bass are so so live and so they are not too too loud or too overstated, but they add so much depth to the to the overall structure of the piece as well. Yeah, I that era especially, you know, Jurassic Park um, would probably fall into that window. Yes. Sean had done a few things that really no one else was doing or had access to. He had a very, very unique set of Neumann M50s on the Decatree. And for a little sidebar, uh, Decatree is a configuration of three omnidirectional microphones that was pioneered by Decca Records for the orchestral recordings. And the Neumann M50 is one of the omni microphones of choice for that configuration. Sean had a set of uh, Neumann M50s with some modifications that were done by, may he rest in peace, Dave Smith, who uh, used to work for uh, Sony Studios in New York. Dave Smith is a brilliant audio engineer. He created these special M50s. I believe Lawrence Manchester has a set in New York. There's, there's only a few of them where they have sort of an extended low end, uh, extended high end, and it became one of Sean's you know, signature tools in his arsenal for a lot of these recordings. You know, I, I think at the time, looking back at their schedules, these are two massively busy people. I don't think, and, and, and frankly, workaholics, you know, working nonstop, going from recording to mix, recording to mix, recording to mix, recording to mix. And I don't think he was overthinking it a lot. I think he, I think it was a lot of like, kind of instinct and go like this, here we go. We're going to, this is what we're doing. We're going to balance it in the room. Um, you know, Sean's often scoring mixers. Part of their job is to produce the session. And, and, and that comes from giving musical notes to the conductor or, or, you know, composer about balancing the orchestra to make it sound right while you record it as, as right as possible. I mean, there's multiple approaches. Um, some people like to mic it in a way where it gives them sort of a infinite more flexibility after the fact, but more, more of the classical record approach would be, we need to capture this exactly as we want it. And, you know, technology at the time, you didn't have 96 channel Pro Tools systems. You maybe were running 224 tracks and four of those tracks, two on each machine were burned for time code and click. So, you know, you had 44 channels to record to you, you were combining things to tape. If you had, you know, a couple mics over the vi first violins, you might sum them on the console to a single channel and print that one mic. Whereas now the idea of summing mics to Pro Tools would seem like an <laughs> arcane concept to a lot of younger people. Why, why would you do that? We might need to change it later. But you were forced to commit. Um, you were also forced to commit in the sense that there was mixing going on, but, you know, throughout the industry, there was a lot of still like live mixes were landing places that were final. So you had to approach a lot of your work, like your live monitor mix is going to wind up in the film. It's your final mix. I think that attitude, that approach forces you, encourages you to always be doing your best work the moment you're recording instead of, well, we're going to, we're going to record this now and we'll, we'll sort of come back to it later. I think it's a combination of, of, of all of that, you know, working nonstop, treating everything like, like it's the final mix. 
puts you at your sort of peak listening when you're when you're doing all that stuff. And they did find a groove, obviously. They 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 found a groove with the communication between the control room and the live room. I, I've had conversations about this from Randy Kerber. I know you've interviewed Randy before. Randy and I are, are very good friends. We've we've worked a lot together. When you're up on that podium and you're listening on headphones, it's not as easy to discern what's good and what's bad as you might think it is. You are relying on the people on your team, whether it's the orchestrators, the, the scoring mixer, to give you the proper feedback for what's happening because it's a collective effort of making sure you get everything you need. And I think they just, they just had it down, you know? and they, they still have it down. Many musicians actually told me that one of the most amazing among the many things that John has is this level of detail that he has when in the ability of picking up every kind of my, even my very minor granular yes. detail of performance. I mean, yes. his ears are so sharp that really he... But he doesn't nitpick. I mean, it doesn't. It's not a way of of micromanaging things on this when he's on the stage when he's recording. It's a fact of recognizing what is essential to make the performance great, and that's it. Probably also his all those years of experience as a conductor uh, in Boston with the Boston Pops probably influenced that attitude as well. I guess. So there, I, I'd say there's a couple things going on there. Um, I mean, certainly yes. Um, one of the things I found interesting of my time at Sony. And again, most of my time was spent in the booth. So the times I got the opportunity to like sit in the room while we're recording, walk around the room while we're recording, um, which are really special. I found that, and I think this is one of the reasons John liked Sony, especially if, if he's in a situation where there's no pre-records and he's free timing to streamers and he's not conducting a click, which means he doesn't need his headphones and he's rehearsing without headphones means he has the freedom to take his headphones off and listen in the room without the headphones on. And I think one of the things that he liked about Sony, it's not necessarily the sound of the room, and the sound of the room is good, but from the position on the podium, you have a lot of clarity of what you can hear. Like mm. you can kind of almost, there's a, there's a great homogenous sound of the ensemble, but you can kind of really pick out individual elements and things very easily from standing at that podium, which enables you to do your job better, basically. Yes. Um, you know, you can hear rhythmic inconsistencies or, 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 or a, a pitch thing where, where it might be difficult to hear that in other rooms. Um, I think that's one of the reasons he, he liked being in that room or likes being in that room.
another thing, which is kind of a little funny anecdote, we were doing editorial for, I don't remember if it was an album mix or if it was for the film. There, there is a comping process that happens after the recording. It's changed a little bit, but like, you know, when the session would end, John and, and Kenny Womberg would come in the booth and we it was called picking takes. You'd go through and you'd do a series of playbacks and everyone would know, let's use this from these bars, this from these bars. It's just part of the process. I mean, we do it all the time. And with Pro Tools, it's a little different because people can call stuff out and you just flag it right away and put it into a comp playlist and, and you move on. But with two-inch mm -hmm. tape, there's a bit more of a civility to it. Maybe, you, you know, <laughs> you sit back and you, you know, have a drink and <laughs> do some listening. John, one point we were checking an edit on something and, and he was getting very particular about this one edit. And he, he, he often remembers, we don't, he's like, I think we have a better performance of that one note in this one beat in this one bar. I think we have it. And more than nine times out of 10, he, he's correct. He's, he's always remembering <laughs> these things. And, you know, we're fixing these things to almost be a little perfect. And John, John said something which I found funny, but you know, it's also true. He's like, Adam, you have to understand there's going to be kids listening to this stuff in headphones and like scrutinizing it for the next 20 years. It's, <laughs> need, it's best to get it right. And I'm paraphrasing, but you know, here we are, you know, the people that did do that, you know, we're, we know the people that do that. And so, you know, there is a sense of wanting to put out something that not to saying error free, but sounds as good as it possibly could. And, and he's, he's been in the business so long, he understands what he can do with the technology, even if he doesn't necessarily know how to operate it. He knows, he knows what's possible. Mm -hmm. D during, during the, that phase, Adam, is that when he decides, you know, Williams is well known for creating album versions, you know, putting together an, a listenable album. And, and in some cases that might be taking part of a cue from the beginning of the film and, and appending it with part of a cue from the end of the film. And, you know, there's obviously controversy within the film score community that you know, it's, <laughs> it's sacrilege to, to do that. But so there's like two schools of thought on that. And, and so that comes later, uh, later. The, the okay. answer to, immediate answer to your question that comes yeah. later. That would, you know, obviously, you know, I've known Ramiro Belgart a very long time now. Ramiro and I have worked together before either of us were sort of doing what we're doing. You know, he Ramiro started out as Kenny's assistant. I was, you know, I was assisting, you know, um, at Sony, uh, obviously Ramiro, Ramiro does a lot of work with John. Um, he keeps everything organized, but that process would involve John and Ramiro kind of putting something together. You know, there, there is this concept of, I want to hear all the school cues in sequence to the movie. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, there's another concept of, I want to create an album that stands on its own and speaks as, as itself. And this is what we're going to do to, to get there. You know, and wouldn't it be nice just to have both? Um, you know, you can't always have both, but I, I think that's kind of where those those thoughts come from. Yes, and I think we live in an era now where I think a lot of composers of the younger generation have understood that basically people, especially with digital technology, you know, with streaming services, uh, people can have access immediately to music. So there isn't any more the reason of putting together that stays into the 70 minute uh, time limit of the CD or the LP. Uh, right. So basically you can have all the music out instantly and, and give access to that. But probably for John, even today is still different. He still cares about the presentation because he wants his music to be enjoyed as a separate entity uh, differently than it is in the movie. And of course, we know that more often than not, music 
ends up being cut up or mixed or dialed down, uh, you know, all the, because uh, editorially, there's a lot of work that comes after even the, the, the sessions, you know, especially, especially nowadays. And I guess that you, you know better than any others. But I'd love to touch also upon um, the relationship between John Williams and Sean Murphy, because basically John have worked with him now, I think it's more than 30 years. Before Sean became his uh, recording engineer, there was uh, Armin Steiner that did a lot of work with John and before him, Dan Wallin and John Neal. But with Sean, he was able to find probably a, a shorthand, I guess, more than, than with any other uh, engineer around. So w- what makes their relationship so special and so unique in your view, you know, as you, from your perspective, of course. So, you know, it's an interesting question because I, I can say that like, they don't socialize much outside of work. I, I really don't know what their like social relationship is like. I just know that they, they work together and then they, they don't, they don't really hang out. I, I, I know that I think the first film now, th- this is great because I know you guys know the answer more of these questions than I do. Um, <laughs> was their first film together Empire of the Sun? It was, yes. Okay, and then there was a big gap in between, I believe, right? True. So, you know, for for a big part of John's career, I think he was working with who was available and who, you know, I, I don't know how much pull he was or, or, or request he was like, I want to work with this person on these things. I know while he was working with Sean, you know, and he, he did a few of those films at Fox. Uh, JFK is one of my favorite scores, Born on Fourth of July. Armin, Armin did those. Um, I don't know. That could have been scheduling. Sean could have been booked on something else. Um, it could have had to do with the fact that at the time, Armin was the house mixer at Fox. I believe those scores were, were recorded at Fox. Yes, they were. Um, yes. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Sean as a scoring mixer versus say the rest of the scoring mixer community is Sean has a lot of experience in classical music and, and he's got, you know, album credits with, uh, Boston, Chicago. Um, he recorded the Anna Sophie, uh, album, certainly at Sony that, um, that the Deutsche Gramophone guys mixed. He does a lot of work, whether it's live sound with orchestras or classical recording with orchestras outside of his, his film music work. I don't know what the timing was with, John working in Boston and coming back from Boston and how that changed or solidified things. But I think, and I'm speculating now, so I'm wondering if John's time in Boston sort of like reshaped the sound he was looking for when he wasn't in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Symphony Hall in Boston is considered one of the great concert halls in the world, Yes, which is really cool because it's in the U.S. and you could <laughs> all be in Europe. And it is a very special place. You know, John spent a lot of time there. I know Sean's done a lot of work there as well, recording. So I'm guessing that that has to be part of it. Although John has worked with a couple other people here and there on certain projects, but yeah, they they always, they always come back together. So um, it's certainly more than just, you know, habit. It's certainly because he likes what he's, what he's producing for him, certainly.
Adam, you mentioned earlier that I had the pleasure of, of attending a session at Sony scoring stage. And it, from my perspective, I, I stayed in the control room. I, I stayed in the, I, I was afraid I was going to sneeze or cough or something out on the stage. So that's a good thing and, to be afraid of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I, I enjoyed, they have a, a back and forth, an honest and playful back and forth. Uh, you know, John will, will uh, record a segment and he'll say, okay, Sean, how was that? And Sean said, well, the beginning was good. And he'll kind of just leave it there. You know? <laughs> uh, yes. And, and, you know, it's understood that, okay, we need to do that again. Or we need to yeah, have a, a pickup here. In, in the, yeah. We all just want to do the best work we can. And we all need honest feedback. And we're all here to do a good job and kind of get it and then move on. And so it, it, part of the job is, you know, encouraging where we're good. And then, like, calling out, this wasn't right. We need to fix this. And because we don't want to leave here and find out we don't have a good take. So it, it's, it's a lot of it's just getting the job done in a sense, yes. you know, but they do have a good rapport. You know, and again, like I said, you, you, you're out in that room, you miss some things. So like, you know, John is relying on Sean to, to hear everything and make sure we leave with, with good takes of everything. Yes, sir. It's a, it's a level of having, a, again, a shorthand, I guess, like he does with his closest collaborators like with the music editors or or the orchestrators you know yeah. it's, it's always having that kind of close-knit circle of people because john differently than other film composer doesn't have a huge team of people that walks with him uh, no. together you know it's just a few uh, no. you know key people that works with him just to assure that he can deliver the best product to his yeah and very much the opposite you know when i started you know and i was very fortunate i got i got to work with jerry goldsmith i got to work with people that have that have passed away and john's workflow is of sort of another era so much music now this is a bit of a tangent but so much modern film music today gets produced by a team because there's no other way to deliver what the what the production is asking for. We want yes. full mock-ups of everything before yes. we record anything. It takes a lot of vision for a director to go to a composer's studio and a composer to just, here, here's a theme I wrote on the piano. Oh, that sounds <laughs> great, Johnny. I'll see you at the session. Awesome. People won't, <laughs> people won't accept that. In fact, when yeah. we did Memoirs of a Geisha, which was directed by uh, Rob Marshall, yeah. there's John working with not Steven Spielberg, and Rob needed mock-ups. So John had a couple people helping him to take his scores and mock it up as best they could so that Rob would be able to have this stuff, you know, because he needed it and he kind of required it. So, yeah, John, you know, sitting at a piano with a pencil, there's this romanticism in music in our business that that's how music gets made. But that's really that's just John at this point, you know, uh, maybe Randy Newman as well, you know, but like that is not the norm at this point at all. No, it yeah. is a big team, and John John keeps a very small circle. Yes, and and speaking of that, uh, I'd love to to have maybe some insight about some of the session that may you have attended with John, because another thing that is very specific of John and and very few others is that he likes to record with a full band together. You know, he doesn't like to do, uh, you know, striping, striping exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and that is again. Nowadays, also because after the pandemic, probably changed a lot of that procedure, of course, doing striping and doing separate sections is basically the norm. And it's just John and maybe a few others that are keeping doing the whole band together. Anyway, in some projects, he, he played 
a little bit with, with some overdubbings or stuff like that. Because recently I talked with Joanne Tarowski, the great harp player that did a lot of work with John. She was telling me about the sessions of Memoirs of a Geisha, that they did a lot of overdubbing with harp and the koto because the Japanese instrumentations. Oh, yeah. And it was very, very interesting uh, from the way she, she spoke about it because it was like John finding a way of, you know, having already recorded maybe the orchestra track and then you know, playing around, having just the harp and the koto or other or the shakuhachi yeah. or, the, or the solo cello. It's, it's fascinating for me. I'm glad you mentioned that one because that was one of my... What year was that? Here again, what, what year did that movie come out? 2005. Okay, so yeah, I had been at Sony at that point a few years. We were probably recording it all through 2004. I remember that project specifically because it would leave and come back, leave and come back, leave and come back. We'd record, we'd mix, it'd go away. We'd come, and, and there were gaps of time, and every time it came back, I'd have to hook up all of these ins and outputs of Sean's reverb, which became like, you know... 16, 18 channels of XLRs plugging all this stuff. And um, I remember it very specifically. Some of it was recorded at Royce Hall. Some of it was recorded at Sony. And there were a lot of solo instrument overdubs that were recorded at Sony. And and it was really interesting to watch. That was the first time I saw John spend a lot of time in the booth and not on the podium. When we were doing one person at a time for a lot of these, uh, you know, these Japanese instruments, he wasn't going to conduct anything. They were on a click. He didn't need to. So he was sitting in the booth at the console with the remote giving notes just like a producer, you know, just like any other producer would, which I thought was pretty cool, actually, because it's so rare to see him work that way. But it's not like it's foreign to him. Again, it's like this guy's been working in this industry longer than many people have been alive. Um, <laughs> he's not it's not a foreign thing to him. It's just kind of how what, whatever makes the most sense for the project.
in terms of overdubbing, it's kind of, it's certainly rare. Maybe the more common thing would be we have to record the orchestra. We're going to record a choir separately. And there certainly are a lot of instances of recording choir live. I believe in the last Star Wars, they did the choir live with the full orchestra and pushed everyone in the back and did it all at once. And that's super fun and cool. But yeah, there's a lot of instances where it's just maybe a little more convenient to record things separately. But yeah, John would not ever want to work with, I want to record the brass and woodwind separately from the strings. Oh, of it's course, just, yes. Yeah, it's just a little, little mind-numbing. In fact, the first time I ran Pro Tools for John was, it was the Harry Potter 3 trailer. We did mm. the Harry Potter 3 trailer at Sony. I, I, I don't know if you guys know this or... No. Oh, wow, what? You don't I didn't know anyway. this? Very okay, cool. I, I think... No, I, it wasn't the first one that he did the trailer before. Well, I know they did the third one there because okay. this was like I was there for it. And when, when we had left at the end of the day, the plan was it was an hour session. They were going to record it to tape, and then they were going to transfer it to Pro Tools at the end and then mix it. You know, at that point, there was a bit of a crossover. Sue McLean was still running the tape machines on those sessions, and then I was just assisting – and I assumed I was going to come in, and in a sense, I didn't have a lot to do. And I got there at 7 in the morning, and I'll never forget, Sean looks at me and said, so I was thinking overnight, <laughs> you know, instead of recording it to tape and then transferring it, we're just going to record it to Pro Tools directly, and you're going to do it. And, I, and this was early on in Pro Tools, so I had only done a few Pro Tools sessions at that point total, and, this, and I'd never done anything like that with John in the room. So my anxiety went to a thousand and I just smiled. I was like, okay, cool. You know, it's an hour and it was the Harry Potter three trailer and we did the choir separately. I specifically okay. remember this. Okay. I don't know if it was a kid's choir. Yes, um, it is. I know that yes. now I'm reminded. Yes. yes. The, the, the little song. Yeah. Double yes, trouble. exactly. Double trouble. That we did yes. it. That we did at Sony recorded it, edited it and mixed it all in, all in one day, basically. Wow. So there's a there's an interesting anecdote of uh, of John doing striping. <laughs> Again, it's 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 usually out of necessity for certain reasons. A lot of striping now happens for two reasons. Either music editorial, which is a legitimate concern. Hey, this is gonna get to the dub and we have to change it 90 times. So I kind of need our Pro Tools session to feel like Ableton Live. I need to be able to move things and in a sense, have as much freedom to recompose based on audio as possible. The other reason is I wrote this in a sequencer and you know I've got a bass flute uh, against a giant orchestra or, or things that like dynamically would never sound the way it does in the computer. And because of the way it's produced, the only way to get it to mix properly is you have to record them separately. This is more of a modern production. But it also, it also has to do, I think, 
with the level of control that filmmakers want to have when they're doing re-recording, you know, when they do the re-recording, the mixing, the dubbing, actually, as, as it's called in, in the industry. Uh, and they want to be so granular in terms of control of the single elements, you know, in this regard, I heard a story about the Harry Potter 3 done in London, you know, the actual scoring stage. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, a conversation between, you know, the, the mixers and the directors that because the director wanted to have more control over single elements of the music, like the harp or, but John doesn't work that way. No. They wanted to have more control because when they are dubbing the movie, they want to have, mm, I don't want the harp in this scene. So just dial down the single instrument or the oboe, the clarinet, John is of another school of thought, I guess. And he's used to work with filmmakers that doesn't have that kind of mentality of being so nitpicky, maybe on some of those and micromanaging details like those, if you know what I mean. Right. I mean, you know, sometimes we joke that these mixes are now wider than the multi-track and it's like, just take the multi-track <laughs> and mix it yourself. Like, you know, it's like the whole point of mixing is to, you know, condense things down to something that just plays back. Yeah, the the decisions for like that kind of granularity, I mean that that seems a little obsessive at that point. It's like, but but I have seen bits like that where, hey, there's this featured moment right here. I don't want that harp bliss there. I I wish we had it separately. So when I'm mixing the picture, I want to turn it off. And at the end of the day, it's really all about the collaboration between the composer and the filmmaker. And at the end of the day, everything we do has to serve the picture. It's, yes. You know, we, we're all we all have a boss. And, 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 and in this example, like the boss is the filmmaker. It's like we're all supporting his vision. John does it in a way that his music stands alone on its own. And we've like True. really benefited and appreciated from that. But still, at the end of the day, even what he's writing, the job of it is to serve the picture primarily. Mm-hmm. So modern filmmaking, you know, filmmakers know more about how movies are made and, and, and what music can do. Than, than ever before. And, and so some people, they have strong opinions, as in they have opinions about their project. And, you know, it all just depends on how, how to best serve that. But as far as the way John works, yeah, he's not going to want to stripe all that stuff out. It just wouldn't serve the music at that point. So you have to have the right pairing of the right composer to the right filmmaker. And, and these things are all very easy at that point. You know, like uh, uh, Robert Zemeckis and Alan Silvestri. Like, there's these combinations of people mm-hmm. that just work really well together, yes. and because they all understand what what their wants and needs are. Yeah, yeah. One one of the things you mentioned that a couple things. One, you mentioned that you know the, the composer serving the film, and it also goes to the striping issue that you know where John is very cognizant of the instrumentation where in the location of dialogue and making sure that you know the orchestration doesn't conflict. In, in the frequency sense, you know, in, in, a, in a technical sense, doesn't conflict with the intelligibility of the dialogue. And, and he seems, is that, do you find that be, to be a relatively unique uh, aspect of a film composer, or at least maybe in the modern day? Or is that something, is that kind of one of those old school things that... No, is... I, I, think, I think a good composer is always aware of that. You've got a dialogue fader while you're writing. Like, you, you have the opportunity at any moment to check your playback against the temp sound effects and the temp dialogue and see if something's stepping on something. That's, in a sense, as part of the, the job description. A- another thing to consider about striping, which is again, more of a production technique. This is sort of getting a little divergent from John's work, but you know, a lot of the modern striping came from media ventures and remote control. 
in terms of really splitting things out in a granular fashion. And I think a lot of that comes from the modern production sound that they pioneered where you're, you're blending your sample libraries with the live elements. Yes. And, and that is a very modern sound. It, it's fairly commonplace, but in order to do it properly, you don't want the brass and strings married together if at the end of the day you need to fit the sample strings against the live strings and the sample brass against the live brass in a way that stays balanced. You need them mm -hmm. broken out a bit. Yes. And so from that perspective, striping is a necessity um, from that way of, of writing and producing music. Yeah, I mean, it's the way John's music is written that, that calls for the, the, you know, the traditional, yes, the traditional way of doing things. And also another thing, really interesting thing that uh, some of the musicians that I spoke with told me, often John, when there is a solo, prominent solo part, he puts, for example, the piano in concerto position in the, on the stage. Like, for example, Randy told me that when they recorded Angela's Ashes, they had the piano besides the podium, like if, if, if it was a concerto. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, sure. Exactly. And again, that kind of that kind of reflects the approach to more of a classical setup, a classical recording in a hall, that kind of vibe, basically. And I think that's a big, important part of it as well. Yeah, wh one of the things from Maurizio's podcast, Adam, in listening to these musicians, uh, especially those who have been featured as soloists in scores, they often have no clue that they're going to be a featured soloist in the score Never. until the morning of the session. But, That's right. but from what you talked about earlier, since you have to do the setup, you, you may actually know. You know ahead well, in of, ahead in of, that of, example, yeah, certainly. Like in that example, if um, you know, we would get the setup and, and you know, if, if Sean was like, put the piano right here behind the conductor, where normally it's by back behind the violins, you know, you know, it's like, okay, something different is happening. Uh, <laughs> it's a big red flag. An right. example of something like that, which is something I worked on with Sean, was the score to uh, The Village, a James Newton Howard film, which is one of my favorite scores. Beautiful. The, the writing's great, but with how it sounded, really amazing to, to be on that. And one of the things Sean did was when Hilary Hahn was there, he didn't use a decatree. He sort of widened out the arc where the podium is, and he put those three Omni microphones on three tall Matthew stand and in a sense created, went from a decatree to a fairly large triangle because he didn't want Hillary standing under tree left. He wanted her inside that main pickup space. Mm, and so, and so when Hillary left, we reset it and then, you know, did it, did the rest of the score material the other way. But that's, again, that's taking those things into consideration for what it'll do. And I learned a good lesson on that one. It was like, why are we doing this? You know, it's like, here's why we're doing this. Oh, that's smart. Taking those things into consideration is, is very important. Did you assist also on uh, Catch Me If You Can by, by any chance? 
That was one of the first things I got to work on, actually. Wow. So I had started there in 2002. So the first thing I worked on with John was the Academy Awards. Maybe one of the first things I worked on in 2002 when I started at Sony full-time was, was the pre-records and all the stuff he wrote for the Academy Awards. The first film I worked on with him was Minority Report. Now, during Minority Report, at the end of the session, since it's all Steven stuff anyway, we recorded the opening title on a separate reel for Catch Me If You Can at the end of the minority, during Minority Report, basically. Oh, um, I don't know what the motivation was for why Steven needed it or why we wanted to record it or if John just wanted to play it for him. And uh, that was like the, the intro to, to sort of what, what so that the, was the, the piece with like. the sax solo, it was that there is a sax solo moment. That's the piece with what, like, like West Side Story, where everyone goes Shh and snaps, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which was kind of a joke that you know, musicians play more than one instrument, they get a double, they get a whole other pay. I was like, <laughs> did everyone just get paid twice for just snapping and going, Shh, or, or how did that work? I think at the end, they, they didn't, but uh, yeah, it was kind of a fun little, little thing to wonder. And then we did Catch Me If You Can, like months later, basically. But but we recorded that opening. I think he wanted to, I think Steven wanted it for the animators, actually. I okay. think that was why he okay. wanted it earlier. Makes sense, He wanted yes. the animators to, to get their hands on it for tempo and feel and, and all that stuff. Um, anyway. No, because I, I've asked because it's one of another scores where there is this magical feeling in the room. You can feel it between the players with John on the podium. Yeah, that fantastic music, the Dan Higgins, mind-blowing saxophone solos. And uh, so yes. I wonder how how the the atmosphere was because some of the musicians told me that again John didn't tell Dan that he was about to play all that no, stuff. No, I mean they just read it. And legend has it that Dan played the whole first take of that piece of the main title with his leg crossed, and John was kind of taken my surprise by that because and he did a perfect take <laughs> so that part of the story i'm not aware of probably because i was too focused on just like making sure you know what i mean but yeah, sure. but dan is an amazing musician he's an amazing sight reader and it would not surprise me in the slightest if he just read, nailed that thing and read it down perfectly first first try yeah that's, that's why you call dan because that's the expectation in a sense yeah, and, and that's and that's the other thing. I mean, the fact that the clock runs at a very strict and precise time, and then other yeah. people tell me told me that John is great. Randy told me this aspect. John is great at managing time on the podium. He he's a magician, not just musically speaking, but also the way he you know he's able to manage time. He knows where the clock is. You know, he doesn't waste any moment. You know, focusing. You know, he's always very yeah. conscious about the time he needs to achieve something is that, and, and he manages it very, very cleverly. I think, I think, again, that comes from his massive amount of experience of doing recording sessions. He, he, he can tell how long something's going to take to make right, and he knows how many minutes of music he needs to record, and, and which ones are easy and which ones are hard and which ones to work on first. And, you know, can constantly be, you know, like we all do, recalculating the rest of our day. All right, well, we've got this many minutes. We'll finish this one about here and, you know, we should be fine. And he's been doing it a very long time. So, yeah, it's like a master, you know, project management on the podium, certainly. Another interesting <laughs> thing that one of the Boston 
symphony players told me is the fact that he doesn't waste time too much, especially when rehearsing, for example, for a concert. If he knows that something is fine, you can, he just did a run through. Yeah. And so, okay, we'll do this tonight. Don't worry. We don't need to do this over and over and over. And I guess, again, it's the, his experience with film where the clock is ticking and time is money. <laughs> yes. It's like, a, you know, I, I, I imagine like, a, was it Scrooge when he gets in the cab and the meter starts running at like oh, right. high speed? Like I imagine like the dollar signs of the session are like, you know, $10 gas where it's just like, you can't even see the numbers of the cost just spiraling. Um, yeah. There's always a clock running and, and, and it, and it's something that, in studio work, not only can you not get away from it, you have to be hyper aware of it. It's it's expensive, and 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 budgets are are expensive, and making films and recording film music is not cheap. So, yeah, he's 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 great about that. And especially impressive if, the, if you think about what he asks to play to the musician. I mean, in all these talks that I did with the musician, I always marveled about, you know, the, the, the intricacy and the virtuosity of the pieces that he writes for these musicians who often do this marvelous playing just by sight reading their part. It, it's and, true. And, and I want to ask you, do you have any recollection of a, maybe a special session which that you were witnessing by working of yes. John Williams of something that say, wow. So yeah, this, this is a good story that kind of fits in everything we're saying. So when we did the opening of Tintin, which was very difficult, we spent a full hour not recording. The first hour was literally rehearsal only because it was so tough to get that opening. And when we first read it, it sounded like a train wreck. It, it was like, <laughs> I don't understand any of this. And it was, uh, once they started figuring it out, it all made perfect sense. And it's the kind of it's the kind of thing where it feels jazzy, but it's read very straight. It's confusing because he the way he weaved a lot of those parts is like, am I playing with the guy next to me or am I a 16th note off from the guy next to me? <laughs> and yeah, it took him a full hour of just rehearsing before we even started recording it. Wow. And again, he managed the time, but he he knew it was not <laughs> going to be easy and and, and it wasn't. And it's a very special piece because it's a kind of a small band, you know. The, the, it is a small a, band. A harpsichord, you know, muted trumpet, saxophone, uh, you know, it's great, crazy it's, ensemble. It's a really yeah. cool instrumentation. It yeah. does remind me again of like, like a pit band or like an interesting little weird jazz combo sort of thing. Again, it's just a testament to how broad his palette is of, of the kind yes. of material he can write. And, and that's a big part of the kind of stuff he, he listened to. Thank you. 
I find it very fascinating in a really cool way where you hear those Raymond Scott influences come into things, whether it's Cantina Band or, say, this, this Tintin thing we're discussing. And that is very difficult music. That stuff is very complicated, and it's not easy to write or even ape or understand. And, like, the fact that he writes this stuff, you know, uh, it's, it's always super impressive and cool to hear him write something that is not a 101-piece orchestra because that's tough, but we, you know, we, we love it, and no, you get spoiled. So suddenly hearing something quirky like that is, like, even more special because it's yes. so rare. And also when he works with his small, you know, maybe the, the kind of smaller movies that he, he sometimes loves to do, like The Book Thief, for example, is another mm -hmm. uh, recent one. So I don't know if you worked on that, but it's so special because you have, you know, Randy playing the piano solos, but there's also harp, clarinet, oboe, just this very kind of chamber orchestrations. You know, there, there's also strings and there's also the broader, you know, the broader instrumentation, but most of the score is just like, there's a solo or a trio or quartet, and it's just magical. I mean, it's not like something that is used to 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 happen in, <laughs> in movie Absolutely. scores. <laughs> Absolutely. Your story about the the, H, the Harry Potter three trailer and that transition from from tape to Pro Tool sessions, it it, it seems, and, and maybe my perception is is off a bit, but it seems John and maybe Sean were sort of wedded to analog analog recordings longer than maybe the, the rest of the industry. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious, and maybe, and again, maybe my perception is wrong on that, uh, but I'd be curious to see. I think that's true. I think that's true for various reasons. One, Sean just wasn't happy with 48K Pro Tools for a while and, and wasn't going to bring John into that until he felt like he could do something better. So there was two things happening. One, digital needed to catch up to a place of audio quality where he felt like he could, and and reliability. Yeah. Those Pro Tools rigs are, I'm going to be smited, pretty <laughs> pretty robust and pretty bulletproof. But there was a time when that was not the case. You know, a Mac freezing and having to reboot while the band's out there, like, you know, there's too much money riding on the line to like, you really want to do that to John? It's like, or you want to like wait until those kinks get worked out. And then there became the death of tape manufacturers stopped manufacturing high quality two inch. So there were a few things kind of happening simultaneously. I think the first time Sean used 192K Pro Tools, it was like 30, you could do 36 tracks max with high quality converters. That was sort of the, the in for like, if you know we can keep the track count down, summing things on the console, this becomes a viable option basically. To, to edit and, and work in Pro Tools and, and bring this, the sound quality to a place where it's not 24-bit, 48K. And, 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 you know, Pro Tools has improved its, its internal processing where it's doing all this floating point stuff now and, mm -hmm. and, and things don't get smashed as easily and when they get summed or, or a volume changed the way it did originally. So yeah, it's come leaps and bounds as well. But I think that was a big part of it. It was, it was, it was the scarcity of quality tape it was the reliability of the system and it was the expanded sample rates that finally all led that transition to happen. Mm. Yeah. So it was l less of an artistic, uh, uh, you know, well, it was I would it, say artistic is definitely where the sample rate issue comes from. Here's another good John Williams story. One of the earlier things I worked on at Sony, there's like weird video of it on YouTube. There's some interesting BTS. We re-recorded a whole bunch of stuff for NBC. 
Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Including some stuff for I think the elections at the time. But we re-recorded the mission theme. We mm-hmm. re-recorded Meet the Press amongst other Today Show stuff. All sorts of the John catalog. And we recorded it on tape. We recorded it at 192K Pro Tools. And then for the delivery, which is very interesting, they wanted archives of 5.1 and stereo mixes at 192K, 96K, 48K, and 44.1. So what we didn't do was just say save copy and sample rate converted, <laughs> here's your sessions. We actually reprinted the mixes through the console and set the sample rate change on the record rig at these different sample rates. So we actually got to listen to the same source material come back in four different sample rates and hear the difference. Most people don't get the opportunity to do this, but when you do get the opportunity to do this, it sticks with you because you hear the difference. Mm-hmm. And we could totally hear the difference from 192 to 96 to 48 to 441. Mm. I'm not going to say at 192K, I was hearing 96K of in my ear because <laughs> I'd be lying. But what you noticed instantly was things like depth perception and space. You could you, you had a sense of 3D space that was super wide that kind of like sucked in a little bit at 96K. And then once you started getting below 96K, you could really start to hear the roll off kind of happen a bit more. So that was all on that stuff. And again, I just think Sean was really particular about when he wanted to bring John into full Pro Tools was because of the audio quality. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, for a scoring mixer, audio quality is an artistic decision. Also, another technical side of things. I, I re- remember Doug uh, when he experienced to be on the scoring stage. Uh, he Doug attended the sessions uh, for the recording of the trumpet concerto by John Williams that was, you know, spearheaded by Tom Hooden, the great yes. principal trumpet of the LA Phil, in a beautiful recording of the trumpet concerto with John conducting. And Doug told me some interesting story about John Hughes' relationship with the click track, <laughs> which is kind of. Uh, uh, you know, kind of a fighting relationship because he knows that he has to comply sometimes to use it, but often, you know, he prefers, you know, and he also says some things like, oh, miserable click tracks <laughs> or well, stuff like that. That's funny. I mean, that's, it's an interesting project though, because that was certainly an album project. So, yes. and, and it depends if like, you know, what, if you're overdubbing things, obviously with picture, it's a different story. Like if you're if you're recording music to picture, it's got to serve the sync of the picture and whatever it takes for you to stay in sync. You know, for most people to click, for John it could be visual streamers, which is you know he's sort of the exception to the rule at this point. Most people 
don't know how to make sense of that. With an album <laughs> project, which is kind of the equivalent of like a, uh, a classical recording in a hall, you don't, you don't have to concern yourself with that so much because you know the music doesn't need to sync to anything. So obviously a good editor can comp takes from this and that and if the tempo from one cut to the other is like 0.75 BPM difference, um, a good music editor would make that transparent. You wouldn't, you wouldn't feel the, the edit feel awkward. I'm not sure what was going on in the Tom project, but John can work in either. But, you know, like a lot of us, we, we work with the click banging in our ear, but that doesn't necessarily mean we prefer to work with the click banging in our ear. <laughs> so so it, it's sort of a love-hate relationship, I suppose. But, but actually, it's like, um, because this, I think this is something I can tell, but uh, I spoke with a musician who played for John for the Indiana Jones 5 sessions, mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. she told me that, you know, they recorded that a pretty intense action cue, and John wanted to do it without click. So basically, <laughs> he is still, you know, did he do it without click, or did he? Did he? Did they leave it on? I, I mean, they, what, uh, what, what she what she told me is that he wanted to record the take without click. So probably he he did all, maybe probably he did a take also with the click. I don't know, but she she wasn't too specific. But right, even if they did a take without click, he would absolutely be using streamers. So yes, of course, yes. So so the streamers would have never gone away. And he would have just been, you know, eyes on me and I'm looking at streamers and, you know, that's how it works, yes. which is something that for him is, again, it's like, it's just supernatural. There's a yeah, few people just... that are really, really good at it. David Newman is really good at it. Uh, Bill Ross is really good at it. But, you know, these are people that also grew up with John Williams in a sense. So <laughs> it's like, you know, there's not a lot of modern people that, that would write with that let alone conduct with it. It has to be something you're also kind of writing with in a sense and it, it, to, for it to make sense to suddenly stand up there and conduct with it. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of colors and punches going across the screen. It's kind of confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. I, I, think, I think with the Hooten session, my, my sense was that I think it was like a six-hour, you know, three, three hours in yeah. the morning, three hours in the afternoon. And I think for the sake of moving the session along, uh, for the first and third movements of the concerto, they they, they did use click tracks. Uh, Got it. William Got said it. a number of times, yeah, he, the dreaded click track. The dreaded and, click. Yeah. yeah, and they probably knew moving it along would help the musicians out, basically, especially if there was some really tricky stuff. A lot of the studio musicians, in certain situations, they they like it. It's helpful. I mean, you literally have, you have a sync source. You know, Doug, we deal with sync sources all oh, the time. Yeah. So yeah. you have a sync source just attached to your <laughs> ear. You know where the next beat is and you know where the current beat is. So it's like in certain situations, it's helpful. It will make things go faster. Yes. I've done sessions where there's a slow tempo. You know, let's say you're at 60 BPM and you've got people playing 16th notes. And, you know, sometimes they're like, hey, let's make the click an eighth note click. Well, now you have a since 120 BPM click going and suddenly things that were a little nebulous is like, Oh, this is super easy. We just, you know, every, every two sixteenth notes, there's another click. And then suddenly it locks perfectly. You're like, great, we got it moving on. So again, it's just yeah. it tends to often be about the efficiency of the time of the session, that old chestnut again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say that during the session, when, when they got to the second movement and Williams, John could take his had the headphones off, there was like this sense of relief. The room was, there was like a just a veil lifted and That's funny and the performances just they felt you know more natural i think mm -hmm. there, there was just a a certain organic level to it that that oh, wasn't for sure. present during in the first and third movements 
you're making music, you know, I, I, there was a, I think it was a, was it Keith Moon? I, I think this is a Who story, and, and it, it had to do with one of the Who's early use of using like a, a sequencer. The drummer had to listen to a click track because in a sense, the sequencer was now running the time of the whole recording for the band. And now the drummer was locked into that. It became another member of the band basically at that point. <laughs> yeah. When you have the freedom to take it off, you have a lot more sort of artistic leeway to push and pull things with your eyes on the conductor. When you put the click up there, the conductor becomes more of a producer and a, a term sometimes we use as a traffic cop. You're kind of managing <laughs> things, but at the end of the day, the tempo is derived from the click. So, but yeah. I, I do, I do remember uh, uh, one of the very few interviews that I saw uh, with Ken Womberg uh, that he said a very, very nice thing about even the sync points with John's. Sometimes they are not, yeah, they are precise, but it's not always a, a matter of hitting exactly in that point it's more right. finding the musicality you know dancing around the sync point and you know and maybe adding a little bit of rubato in the performance so that 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 sense of relief that you have is arrives after a great musical tension john's music is always a matter of tension and release tension and release if you think if you listen to et it's all about that, basically. It's how he builds and builds and builds and builds and finally find the perfect moment where he can release the tension and, and well, then the bikes goes over the moon and then and, and you can cry at the end when AT and Elliot touches the, the fingers. And, <laughs> you know, it's finding that. And this sense of theatricality and musicality is what makes him stand, in my opinion, uh, above other fine composers, but not on the same level. And he, the fact that he he's able to pursue both the needs of the movie, but also the needs of the music, you know, without renouncing at anything that is musical and important to him as a musician, because in, in the, at the end of the day, he's, he considers himself a musician serving a picture, not just a film composer. I think you kind of nailed it exactly. He manages to completely serve the picture while writing beautiful music that stands on its own. And that's not easy to do in our business, especially in our modern business, with the way film scores get temped with other material. John has a lot of freedom with the people he works with. If you hire John, you're hiring John because you want a John Williams score. You know, you're not asking him to match the temp. You're wanting, you're hiring John because you want John to bring the magic of what he does to your project. And so, yeah, John has a unique relationship, you know, with filmmakers and certainly with the projects and people he works with that maybe a lot of other film composers don't, don't have that kind of leeway.
And, and speaking of people who are close to John, uh, we already mentioned him, uh, Randy Kerber. Uh, as you said, you are, you are a good friend with him, but also work with him as a uh, scoring mixer for his movie score for the show film Cello, which is a beautiful piece of music. I mean, it's absolutely inspired and lovely. And, and, and he told me an interesting anecdote that maybe you can add something to this, that John suddenly appeared <laughs> at those scoring sessions out of nowhere. <laughs> he, he did. I believe there was talk ahead of time of him stopping by and visiting Randy's session, although it wasn't announced to anyone. And Doug, you've been to Sony, so you know where the back entrance is of the control, mm -hmm. you know where the kitchen is, you know where that walkway is outside. So I had heard a rumor that John was going to stop by and visit the session. For me, what was particularly wild was that I was mixing. And, you know, at that point in my life, John had never seen me mix. He'd always seen me sitting six feet to the left of yeah. Sean, you know, assisting the session. And this was probably at the point I was getting ready to leave. And, you know, I've been working with Randy and John came to visit. All of a sudden, I'm sitting at the console and I look up and I see John. And he looks at me and walks over and starts talking to me with a room full of people. He's like, Adam, you're mixing. I'm like, yeah, John, I am. How are you? He's like, oh, that's great. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. And then he walked out and went into the live room. And that was it. I looked over at my friend who was just like stunned. And my friend looked at me and was like, what is going on today? Um, I'm like, hey, man, it was, just a, it was just a wild moment. And it was super cool, obviously, to have that recognition from someone that like you've been working with for a long time, but you know, people see you in a role until like that changes and it takes time to, to change perceptions. Certainly. I'm sure Randy shared the story of what happened when John went out there, suddenly everyone puckered up and got real well behaved and, um, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, super funny, but, uh, it's a, it's a really great memory. Certainly. It's also a way of, I mean, he, he, I guess it speaks about his personality, you know, uh, the, the fact that he went there to show his, uh, you know, to, to pay his tribute to, to, to a friend and to, to a person who is dear to him. I mean, it's not like he's something that he has to do. I mean, it's basically something that speaks also about his personality, his level of modesty and humility. And it's not about like himself. Another thing that, interesting thing that uh, Randy told me is the fact that Sometimes John did maybe some uh, recording, you know, at the piano, but it's not something that 
he announces, now I'm playing the piano with all the band together. No, he's usually, you know, after the, all, the whole band has gone, has gone away, then he sits at the piano, maybe asks to the engineer, to Sean, to record him playing maybe a solo or something. And First of all, it's rare. It's rare to catch John sitting at the piano in a studio with the red light on and, and you know, recording. <laughs> but it's also a super cool treat, certainly. It's not like he can't play. He chooses not to play. It's just where he's at. Hey, he's the boss, his prerogative. He wants to sit down at the <laughs> piano and bang something out by all means. But everyone realizes how special it is. You realize John's at the piano and you're recording. Suddenly it's like, whoop. <laughs> it's really attentive, like, hey, sh don't say anything or we might break the spell. I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's an amazing piano player. Is, um, yeah, but it is, it is a treat, certainly, anytime he decides that he wants to just sit down and record something for a moment. The, uh, but the, speaking of Randy, I think also that I saw on your SoundCloud page a, a lovely piece that Randy did for us, as, as, talking about Star Wars. I mean, uh, you know, he arranged one of the themes that John wrote for the Galaxy's Edge oh, yeah. uh, theme park. And, and he did this very wild, atmospheric synth version of John's music. <laughs> so the original recording of that, and I'm assuming you guys have seen that, Bill Ross conducted it at Abbey Road and it's on the YouTube Symphony, yes. of his original theme. And when Randy came up with that, I remember and he's like, listen, I want to use John's melody, but I really want to sort of create a totally different environment and slow it down. He had done all of these things. Most of that was built with a lot of overdubbing of Chris Bleth playing a lot of interesting woodwinds. Brian Kilgore playing tons of percussion on there where we just stacks of overdubs of all these instruments. <laughs> it's, it's such a beautiful piece. The funny thing is when we mixed it, Randy wanted me to do this very slow, dramatic build from soft to loud. And I'm like, this is going to go in a theme park. We might not want to do that. It should basically be like the same yeah. level the whole time. <laughs> brick brick wall. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't want me to do that. And, you know, the guys that put it in, I was like, what did you do? He's like, well, I had to gain it up a lot, compress it. And I was yeah. like, so, you know, the lesson there is it's always best to deliver the way they want it instead of having them change it. I would have been happy to print two versions. But that's the version that's on the SoundCloud is the, is the one that Randy conceived of this slow, methodical buildup over multiple minutes it's beautiful it is one of my favorite pieces of music that i've ever ever worked on and and it was all conceived with just lots of overdubs of, of a few musicians and then you know what randy came up with in his sequencer it's, it's a super cool piece of music i'm glad you enjoyed it
that was done at, at Hollywood Scoring, right? The, yes, the that's set, correct. Recorded yeah. the producer set at your yeah. studio. Uh, the other interesting uh, aside were the the the, the market cues that that also uh, Randy had put together. Yeah, that was about an hour's worth of music, and Randy split that work up with Harlan Hodges, who is a composer and colleague that plays piano, lives in L.A. The market music we were tasked with creating alien music basically okay <laughs> you're in the market at a bazaar in some star wars desert planet and if you're like walking down some corridors what kind of music might you hear what would the jawas or whatever like what, what would you hear and so yes. they were tasked with creating some really interesting music one of the stories that you mentioned and you may be getting there was the back and forth like when you would send you would create a version send it so what's interesting about that is we didn't have a lot of oversight which is kind of rare for for a process like that they tasked randy with coming up with this music and they left him alone and then we delivered it and then randy went away to paris and they're like we need to make changes the note from imagineering was this music sounds way too earthbound we need to do something that makes it sound less earthy basically more alien and so Randy's like, well, listen, I'm gone. Adam has the stems. I think he can figure out how to do what you want. And so, you know, as far as acoustic instruments go, we picked a lot of weird instruments and mixed things from other cultures. But yeah, there were no synthesizers. It was all very acoustic in nature. The only tools I have are basically the audio tracks that we mix, the stems, and then like plugins. I need to manipulate the audio to make it pass the litmus test. So, Doug, you'll appreciate this. I think one of the oldest sound effects in Star Wars is a, a ring modulator on a voice in like a radio call, right? It's super basic, super old school. So my thought was, what if I ring modulated something, at least one or two tracks in each of these songs, and kind of made it sound like a droid? And that was kind of my approach. I listened to each song, and I manipulated one or two of the playback tracks, whether it was a melodic instrument or a percussive instrument, just enough to create some like electronic artifacting that made it sound like a droid. Um, and that was the fix. Now, the funny part about being in Galaxy's Edge while they were still building it reminded me of that bit from Robot Chicken where the Death Star isn't quite finished and the Emperor can't talk over the Union guys working on the Death Star. Um, it was literally like that. You're trying to work and there's people building Galaxy's Edge still, so you have to wait till they're done because you can't hear the music coming out of the speakers. That was a really fun experience, being at a theme park while they're building it, and certainly something that's dear to our hearts, Star Wars, and being a small part of that, was, it was a <laughs> lot of fun. I do have a really good Force Awakens story. The beginning of the session, JJ was there. We've worked on enough films together where we do recognize each other at the studio, and so on the first Force Awakens session, JJ and I are roughly in the same age ballpark, mm -hmm, and assuming mm -hmm. we're both adults that grew up on this stuff and are now having the same experience. Dude, can you believe after this, like we're sitting here with John Williams in the room recording <laughs> Star Wars and we're working on this? Like, does this make any sense? And he was like, I know, this is crazy. I can't believe it. It was like, he was as much as a kid at that moment as I was, and he's the filmmaker. And we're having the same moment about relating to our childhood with Star Wars and John Williams, and here we are working on this thing. And that was, uh, that was really interesting to, you know, it's like, again, going back to sort of where we, what we talked about in the beginning, how much of an influence his music has had on our lives and our careers, whether we're making music in film or making film in film. And there was that yes. moment where, like, you didn't want to play adult anymore. You didn't want to <laughs> pretend that it was a job. You wanted to let your inner kid feel the joy and the excitement of being able to have this experience. Yeah, that was a pretty cool little little moment.
one, one maybe the last thing I'd love to touch upon. I mean, we talked for almost two hours now. Yeah, we're and, doing good. <laughs> yeah, and it's so and it's so great. I mean, what are the works that now you know since you moved out of Sony and started your own solo career? Because say, uh, what are the works that you are particularly proud of that you did so far? There's been a fun few things recently. I just worked on a recording project at Royce Hall for Genshin Impact. And we had last done in 2017 for the John Williams, Steven Spielberg album, which is to oh. build, build a steel deck stage in the middle of Roy's hall and record the orchestra. Instead of on the stage, you record them in the middle of the house. Mm. It's rare to do it because basically it's rare to do it because it's expensive. But our client wanted a recording in a concert hall. We proposed, if you want to do something really cool, check this out. And these are the things that have been done this way. And they were really interested in it. They thought that sounded like a really cool idea. And so they, they went for it. And so we were at Royce Hall where we basically brought over almost everything from the studio. I was joking that we left the TVs on the wall and the fridge and the coffee maker, but almost all the gear migrated over and we set up our studio inside Royce Hall and uh and did this remote recording i do a lot of work with riot games that's been one of my oldest clients through my freelance career and and with hollywood scoring riot games did a collaboration for star guardians which is this concept they have in league of legends and they did this collaboration with porter robinson who is a very huge electronic music artist and we did a recording session at Warner Brothers and it was his first time ever in a scoring stage. <laughs> we were producing this recording session with Brendan Williams. Brendan Williams is one of the staff composers at Riot Games, incredibly talented person. And we worked on this project together and I recorded material for Porter Robinson's song. That song gets released, but I recorded, mixed and mastered the Star Guardians theme, which was released on YouTube and streaming services. That was quite a labor of love. We spent a lot of time going back and forth on revisions and it was quite a challenge because there's a huge orchestral element, but there's a huge electronic element. Again, it wasn't mixed for picture. It was only mixed to serve music. It's really beautiful. It's very pretty, very melodic and amazing, talented. Cameron Stone played solo cello and Suzanne Waters is singing on that. In addition to like, you know, the full brass winds and string sections that we had. That was a pretty fun, exciting thing to be working on recently. Something else I worked on, which is 
not in-game but related to Riot is the Netflix series Arcane, which is, a, again, a, an amazing accomplishment of, uh, it's like a visual aural spectacle. And the composers that worked on the music and songs, Alex Temple, Alex Siever, did an amazing job. The orchestra was recorded at Teldex in Berlin, and I mixed it over the course of a couple years while we produced it. It's a really cool project to be associated with. Adam, I mean, this is absolutely a fantastic conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I we mean, could go two more hours. I yeah, suppose. absolutely. <laughs> yes. it's, yeah. We really, I think, just a scratch at the surface in, in, in many ways because there is so much to talk about the level of intensity that, that your work has, but also the fact that it's so crucial to what the score, the, a film score sounds like. Whenever you want to come again, I will be happy to have you again as a guest. Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun and I'd be happy to chat anytime in the future. Yeah, it's been, it's been great sort of just recalling some of these things and, and, and going over some of these amazing experiences that I've been fortunate enough to have. As I've said before, I was, I was in the right place <laughs> and I got to learn a lot from these people. And um, yeah, I'd be happy to come back and chat some more. And thank you also to you, Doug. I mean, I w I'm so happy that we, I think we met for the, even virtually for the first time. Yeah. There are yeah. so many years of just being <laughs> behind, online behind friends. The, yeah. yeah. But I'm so happy that you assisted me actually because you are friends with Adam for so many years and, and, and you actually inspired me to, to have him as a guest on the show. So thank you so much for being part of this and, and for your friendship again. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure being here and it's always uh, good to reconnect and kind of kind of bring two two parts of my life together here, you know, from uh, different Absolutely. phases. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you so much, guys. It's been, it's been so fun. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.